Cappuccino with Constable Brian. Real people, real stories. So my guest today for the Cappuccino is Kylie Ryan. Kylie has been a social worker, a clinical social worker, a training manager. She's worked in rape prevention education. She's a health promoting schools advisor. She's done bullying and harassment and contact person work. She's been a national manager for the Deer Foundation. She's been a wellbeing lead for the University of Auckland. She's been a wellbeing and injury management coordinator at the BMZ. She's a director of her own company called The Tough Staff. Uh, she's also a dance teacher too, so check that out. So welcome to the Cappuccino. Uh, I've known Kylie for years, so I don't know who's more nervous here, me or her. Yeah. Uh, right, so we do a speed round dedicated to speed, which is the world's greatest police movie because it's got Keanu Reeves in it, full stop, and Sandra Bullock. Uh, so... Pop quiz, hot shot. Uh, your first question. The last book you read was what? Always French. Right, okay. I'm guessing it's something to do with France <laughs> or French people. That's all good. Uh, the last thing to stress you out was? Buying at my daughter's school uniform 10 minutes ago. That'll do it, yeah. Are you a list maker, a planner, or a go-with-the-flow person? I'm definitely a go-with-the-flow person. I mean, it's the best way to be. Um, <laughs> worst physical injury you've ever had? And what was the rehab time on it like? I ripped my calf in three places during a dance, but not during a leap. It was whilst running off the stage, which was a bit embarrassing. And in my old age, it took me eight weeks to recover from that. Beautiful. And given the fact you're only 27, <clears throat> oh well, all good. Uh, <laughs> desert island for three days, and you only have three things to take. What three things do you take? Matches, water. And chocolate. Good work. Worst piece of advice you've ever heard to do with somebody's mental health or well-being? Suck it up, buttercup. Yep. I'll give you that one. Okay, <laughs> right. So, let's get into some questions. What the heck does wellness look like to you? Because at the moment, there is an absolute plethora of books, scented candles, exercise programs, <laughs> mindfulness uh, programs, apps, everything else you can buy. And they're really, all of them are saying, this is it, this is the game changer, this is the life changer, do this, and you could probably walk through a mortar field um, and be like a Zen monk. So, mm. yeah, so what is it? What's wellness look like to you? Well, I think it's probably important to remember that you can have all the resilience in the world and be the most well being fanatic possible, yeah. but if there's enough long-term uncontrollable stress raining down on you it's going to impact your mental health no yeah. matter how resilient you are yeah so i think that's probably the biggest factor that we miss when we're looking at well-being is how we deal with that long-term uncontrollable stress yeah um and being in a profession that uh, lots of people look at as being bulletproof perfect example get to the end of our careers and yeah in the rocking chair so to speak um okay so according to global wellness institute the global and wellness industry is now worth more than $4.2 trillion. Wow. Uh, yeah, it contributes to 5.3% of the global global economic output, right? And the four leading factors, believe it or not, research you do, Constable Brian. I know. Yeah, clean eating <laughs> trends, wearable devices, wellness tourism, which I'm guessing is taking a bit of a hit at the moment, <laughs> and Amazon's number one is the number one seller for nutritional supplements and number two for skincare around the world, right? Are those four factors 
anything you consider vital to wellness. So I'll give them again to you. Uh, clean eating trends, wearable devices, wellness tourism, and Amazon's nutritional supplements and uh, <laughs> being number two for skincare. No. Yeah, that's what I thought you'd say. <laughs> what, what are the four factors you think are vital to your wellness? I reckon social connection is huge, and we've seen that in the last year. What happens when we're isolated and don't have that as much? Yep. Um, we see it a lot with working from home, and it's the biggest factor when I'm dealing with kids is you know their friendships and their connections. So I think that's massive. That's the first one. Second one is balance. Like, you know, sometimes you just eat cupcakes for the day and that's okay. Yep. Sometimes you need a nap. Perfectly fine. So finding that balance in it. Um, and yep, physical health is really important. We know that. It's like the best drug that you can possibly have. But it's actually not doing as many hip trainings as you can and doing all of the things. It's just anything you're going to do consistently yep. that you enjoy doing. And I've got one more, and I'm going to say wine. Okay, that's all right. That's all good. No, was... <laughs> not for your children, no, no, though. Yeah, that's all good. <laughs> and uh, let's, let's go back to the physical exercise thing, because that's really important. I think lots of people who do physical exercise actually don't realise that that can be as addictive as narcotics and alcohol and everything else because we all know people who if they don't have a training session every day it's like mm -hmm. the world's coming in so yep. yeah anyway uh so there are an absolute truckload of books by many different authors all of whom can advise you on things such as anxiety um, improved performance how to become a pseudo monk is any of it worthwhile for your wellness or mental health because i read those books and i sort of go on like a six week journey of yeah I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this and blah 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 and then either I discover a new book and go okay so that's saying that the last book I read was crap or I go hmm and it begins to fade from my memory and I go off and do something else so I don't read them yep. um. yeah that's right <laughs> Mainly because that, a whole lot of fads, right? It's like the diets that go around, like do this this week, do that next week. Um, I think you're better off kind of taking a step back and just getting to know for you personally what is it that keeps you well for longer yep. and yeah. do more of that. Now there's men's health in particular, which we all know is, uh, well, let's be honest, it's, it's the car accident at the bottom of the cliff to be fair because we're not very good about talking about it, we're not very good about asking for help. Um, people don't normally see the signs. We've got that big stoic stone face thing going on. Um, like you said, harden up, suck it up, buttercup seems to be the advice. So there's lots of men's mental health advice, and it seems a lot of it is focused around a physical challenge or doing some achievement based goal. Um, if it's climbing Mount Kilimanjaro or you know carrying a 500 kg backpack around the car park, something like that. As we all know, one size doesn't fit all. So what should you actually do if you're actually stuck in a rut with your mental health? Because it's fine for somebody to say, go and do CrossFit, say, for instance, but if you can't even get out of bed, yep. you're stuffed. Mm -hmm. So what do you do? Yep, and I think it's really assessing, you know, how long terms it's been going on as a red flag. So, you know, everyone sometimes has a bad month, a bad week, where you're kind of on a roller coaster. But if that's going on, even though you're trying to do some things, like exercise and sleep, um, then... I think you really need to go and see your doctor probably in the first instance and just check out that there's not something clinical going on. Yeah. Because when we're talking about mental illness, that's quite different from mental distress or mental health. It's a clinical illness yeah. where we can actually put some really good things in place to help people manage that over a lifetime. And you can have a mental illness and still be in really good mental health. Yeah. So it's really important to get the right people around you 
and the right support in place. And look, let's be honest, it doesn't matter how many push-ups you do, it's going to distract you for a wee while, but it's not going to actually stop what's going on, is it? Yeah, it's a quick fix, but yeah. it's not a long fix. Does it alarm you how celebrity has almost become a qualification when it comes to offering advice, be it for your mental health, well-being, fitness, or all of the above? Seems like every celebrity uh, is coming out with a wellness journal or, hey, if you buy this um, Tibetan rock salt uh, lamp from me, it will improve your life and everything. Does that, does that scare? Because a lot of these people, they don't have any formal training, they don't have any qualifications, and to be fair, um, their experience with mental health, I'm guessing, probably isn't that good either. Yeah, it's a huge issue because they don't have the clinical background to understand what's actually happening to the brain at that time. Yeah. So often they focus on the quick fix instead of what's actually happening in, the, in that person's brain, um, which is what we need to address when it comes to mental health. So one of the things that puts a lot of people off starting on their wellness journey is the cost. Uh, rather than being like, don't smoke or don't drink too much or do some exercise, stuff like that. Uh, eat lots of vegetables, etc., etc. Um, it seems to be you've got to do this culture of retreats and seminars and yoga instructors. Um, does it cost an awful lot to achieve wellness, as far as you're concerned? No. <laughs> that was Do you want easy. me to answer that further? Yeah, no, that's all good. <laughs> oh, look, I'm happy with that. That's all good. I mean, so if somebody wants to improve their general wellness and they're like, you know what, I'm a mum, I've got three kids, I don't have an awful lot of time, I don't have any money to spend on uh, a yoga retreat or anything else, what would be your advice to them? Do a little something every day that makes you feel better by the end of the day. Right, perfect. Okay, now here's the big one, because you and I hear this all the time, so I've asked, asked it as the devil's advocate. <laughs> we all hear people going on about today's kids. They've got no resiliency, they're obese, they're anxious about everything from stick insects walking in front of them to cracks in the concrete, uh, and they're permanently connected to their devices with with or, uh, sorry, they're never permanently con not connected to their devices and they have very little social skills. Would that be a fair assessment in your experience or not? No, and I've worked with, I think I did a count up the other day, over 45,000 kids and adolescents in the last 10 years and it's nowhere near, and I think every generation does it. We always like to say, you know, this generation's not doing so well, but yeah. they're actually doing really well, and we yeah. need to give them a lot more credit for it. Yeah, it's like uh, when I talk to parents and they're going on about Fortnite being the new evil, I always say to them, so if I ask your grandfather what the new evil was, he'd say it was some guy from uh, Memphis swinging his hips on TV called Elvis, and that, did, that didn't work out too bad, yep. did it? <laughs> uh, yeah. Anxiety. Why do today's kids suffer from it so much as compared to kids from... 40 years ago and I know that anxiety wasn't really a term yeah. um, then but are they overthinking it or are we underthinking it do you think? We're looking at it the wrong way so anxiety is a natural state we want our brain to do that and we want our kids brains to do that right because if they're in danger we want our brain to flick into anxiety mode we want the adrenaline to pump through and we want to be able to respond in the way we need to to stay alive yeah. so it's a normal response so we want it to happen what we've got to get better at is teaching kids how to turn that on and off so what's changed in the last 40 years is there's a lot more things flicking that anxiety on in the brain so we've had to adapt to that and become really good at learning how to turn that fight flight mode off yeah. so that we can respond to that anxiety and use it for like superhero good yeah because because cops love a bit of anxiety, you wouldn't get half the things exactly, done. Exactly, yeah. It's, it's the adrenaline rush I live yeah. for, yeah, yeah, exactly. You're not wrong either. Now, there's going to be some listeners who are dumbfounded or annoyed or will write off now. Um, 
some of their kids with regards to um, sexuality, right? What do you do when you encounter somebody who does that? Or, you know, during my day, we didn't have this gender fluid, transgender stuff. Um, how do you explain it to somebody who doesn't get it? Um, you know, particularly gender fluid, uh, because, I, I mean, I know I've got mates myself who sit there and go, what a load of nonsense. You're either, you're either drinking a hot chocolate or you're having a nice <laughs> strawberry drink. You don't switch from one to the other. Um, how do you explain it to them? Um, on a continuum, really, and it's always been there. It's just never been quite as open as what we are now about it. And I always just say, what a cool world we now live in that you can be who you are. Yeah. Um, and that people accept that around you and that you can get the support around you for that. Um, because how confusing is that for a kid? For a start, like, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. all these adults are worried because, oh, that kid's going to be using my the same toilet as my kid. Yep. All that kid wants to do is be who they feel they are. So adults are overthinking it because they put a sexuality or a sex lens on it yep. when it's not about that. Now, speaking of toilets, because that's something that does pop up all the time, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, this thing of should we still have male or female toilets or should we actually, in actual fact, just go to individual cubicles where anybody can go in them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what I thought you'd because, say. Because what's the fear? The fear for people is that they're not safe for some reason in either a co-gender toilet or if other people are using the bathroom. So what would make people feel safe in that situation for everyone, not just for one individual? Yep. It's probably separate toilets. And, you know, there's other good uses of a separate toilet with a door no yep. one can hear. And let's be honest, if the wall is full <laughs> of the ceiling, it's like, yep, moving it's... on. Yep, not wrong. So... What's the best age to discuss sexuality or orientation with your kids? And where would you look to for advice if you are a slightly terrified parent or caregiver yourself <laughs> and this has just sort of started to pop its head, head yep. up? So the best time to start is actually from day dot and when they start asking you questions. So like when they ask how babies are made or how that baby got in that lady's stomach, that's when you're just honest and just tell them and it doesn't have to be complicated you don't need to know all the terms or the science you just have to answer the question and be honest because if you don't answer those questions when they're little they're not going to ask you the questions when they get bigger yeah so it's been honest from day dot um if you're freaked out about it take a deep breath go blah, 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 <laughs> and then run away and go oh yeah or I like to think of it as torture for my children when you answer because they kept you awake for so many years. You now get to embarrass them with yeah, your answers. that's true. And yeah. if you go and check out uh, Kylie's Facebook page, The Tough Stuff, it's actually got a couple of conversation starters on the whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> so I thought, yeah, okay, then cool. I can't wait to do that with my niece and nephew just quietly. Uh, what's the best way to approach the conversation about the birds and the bees? Because let's be honest, we've all heard some absolute horror stories with you know um i've heard everything from stay away from girls uh (laughs) yeah yeah yeah, well yeah exactly you know this is what happens and um you need to make sure that you're prepared but they actually haven't given them any tips on being prepared it's just be prepared they don't know what for so what's the best way to actually prepare kids for that as they get a high school. Look, the easiest way is to start it early with their friendships, right? Yeah. So they go through a whole stage that we often miss talking about this stuff, and it's that primary school years when they're forming friendships, and they're learning about boundaries within friendships, how to tell someone they don't like what they're doing, um, you know, how do we end a friendship if it's not going so well, how do we make our friends feel cared for and looked after. 
and that's a really good segue into then talking about relationships when they're teenagers because we want to focus not so much on the sex aspect of it which is a bit freaky for everyone and a bit awkward but on what a good relationship and a healthy relationship looks like and the other thing that parents probably need to know is that when you talk to your kids about sex is that you're allowed to put your boundaries and your thoughts and beliefs into that yeah And the research shows that parents who say, look, in our family, this is our expectation of you in regards to sex, often the kids live up to that, which is good news. So talking about it doesn't make them do it. Actually, the research shows the opposite. Now, flicking onto the, I'm going to say the darker darker (laughs) side of sex, but it isn't really. It's like the the side I kind of deal with quite a bit. So according to a recent report from Ministry of Justice earlier this year, one quarter of all women in New Zealand have experienced sexual assault sometime Mm -hmm. in their lifetime, right? And crime and victim surveys, again, have revealed that 85% of victims of sexual violence don't recognise that that's actually what's happened to them yep. when it's happened to them. Um, so, is this why rape prevention and sexual harassment education is so important for New Zealanders? Is that, why aren't we doing this? It's, it's a no-brainer. Absolutely. Yeah. So, and it's, we've got to move it from looking, we've kind of taken a victim-focused approach to that in the in the previous years we've gone to young girls you know you need to stick together in a group you need to you know dress in a certain way you need to behave in a certain way Um, and yes there is personal responsibility in what we do but the big thing is we need to understand how offenders work in that and while no one wants to hear it we actually do have people who are going out and selecting who they are going to offend against mm-hmm. with sexual abuse and assault. And we often think that that's the stranger danger stuff, which freaks everyone out, but it's not. 80% of those offenders are known to families, and they groom the entire family. Yeah. Okay, so they're getting the parents on board. You're okay leaving your child with these people because you trust them, and that's the way in which it works. So it's actually knowing that, um, and a big prevention is just reducing opportunity for that to happen. When you deliver your talks, for instance, on rape prevention or sexuality, um, if I get you to picture the audience in front of you, how many of those people that are there are daughters with their mums as opposed to daughters with their families? Uh, most, uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, a lot of the work I do is just with parents yeah. because it's it's talking to parents about how to talk to their kids because I don't want to be the one giving that information no, to their no, kids because no. yep. I think families are the best yeah. people to be doing yeah. that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, often it's still daughters and mothers and um, fathers and sons. Yeah. But actually, fathers have some great messages yeah. and a big part to play in that with their daughters and their sons as well. Yeah, huge part. Um, look, let's face it. Like I said, of uh, my mate's skills, at one stage we were boys as well, so we know exactly what they're thinking. Yeah, yeah. and let's just stop just talking to the girls about it. Like, we actually need to be talking to the boys about yeah, this exactly and right. about how they're respectful in relationships as well. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like, uh, look, you know, the police do Loves Me Nots, for instance, through um, the Sophie Elliott Foundation, and we also do COS and a few other bits and pieces, but the more people that approach us, the better. Um, it's estimated by Professor Jan Jordan from Vic Uni that a lot of boys have most of their sex education informed by pornography. That is a direct quote. Uh, th- and that there's obviously a link to sexual violence because of mm-hmm. what happens in those movies, what their expectations are. They may go out on a date, do something, and then, oh, hang on, that didn't quite work out the way I thought it did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, why don't we educate boys as much on sexuality and prevention as let's say that we're doing with the girls, for instance, and I know that you, um, and again, in one of your posts, puts um, 
I don't, you, you actually put, I don't like doing the period lady visits to the school, which I think is great because you're referring back to the old sex education days where somebody would come in, talk to you for half an hour and you meant to walk away knowing everything about everything. So why aren't we talking to the boys as much as we are the girls about it? Because we think they're a one-off conversation, right? Yeah. So because girls go through puberty earlier, the conversation starts earlier with them, so we get a bit better at it. Boys go through puberty a bit later, and it tends to all happen at once. Um, and we think a one-off talk like the good old days is going to do it. But it actually has to be a talk right throughout their development. Um, and, you know, girls aren't responsible for everything in a relationship. It's a relationship because we want two parties to be happy and healthy. Um, so we need to get a lot better at talking to boys from a young age around that friendship stuff as well and around, you know, you don't just get to smack someone in the head and walk away and it'll be okay. Yeah. Um, and how do they talk to girls? How do they break up with girls? Yeah, exactly. You know, how do they know, how do they read signs and signals from people when it's not a verbal signal? Yeah. All of those sorts of things. And here's a hint for you if you are listening to this and you're under the age of 20, sending a text message is not a good way to end a relationship. Ah, <laughs> uh, right. Okay, so... What's the ideal solution, in your opinion, uh, to solving the issue? And I'm going to give you, i.e., in a perfect world. So you've got unlimited budget, you've got all the staff you need, and everything else that's your dream come true, Kylie. Yeah. Um, but what's the ideal solution? Like, for me, uh, and this is just me thinking aloud here, we should be teaching this like we're teaching maths and English and that type of stuff, because I think the way, if we actually did that, there's a lot of our social issues would be non-existent to be fair yeah um yeah how would you do it yep so we need to think of schools as an add-on to what we do at home really like you know most parents send their kids to kind of school and they can already do a little bit of stuff before they get there you know and that we keep going with that right while they're growing so ideally i think parents and families are the number one who need to have the knowledge on how to have that conversation throughout a lifetime because they're the only ones who are there from zero to 20 who can make sure that it's consistent the whole way long. Um, within schools, there needs to be set standards and teachers need help. Like We just assume that because you're a health teacher, you can crack this out. <laughs> Here you go, go yeah. and make up some curriculum. Yeah, yeah. You know, We need a lot more support for teachers. We need a lot more education around what's appropriate at what age, for what information. Um, and you know it's 50-50 around whether students prefer someone external coming in and doing that or whether it's the teachers coming in and doing that. The good thing about teachers doing it is that they're there for the aftermath. So the sexual abuse stuff we talked about, you know, you don't want someone coming in and raising that in an assembly and then walking away. No. You want someone there who the kids feel safe with, who they can go and talk to afterwards. Yeah, because let's be honest, if they are going to disclose something, it's going to be to somebody that they know. Um, it's an experiment I very often play with some of the primary school kids. I'll match the boys up with the girls, and then I'll say to them, they're in partners facing one another, tell them about your favourite movie, and they're like, oh. and I'm like, so if you can't talk to them about your favourite movie, what chance have you got saying, hey, I need some help because this has just happened to me? So yeah, yep. you're exactly right. Uh, there are many people who talk about being active bystanders, uh, but as you and I have both seen, because we've both seen some of their social experiments, I know you've even done some, uh, with a victim or a couple having issues, for instance, uh, have demonstrated most people, uh, and I'm saying probably 75 to 80%, and that would be fairly conservative as well, walk past um, somebody who's either in distress or is quite clearly having some type of altercation. Why do you think they do that? 
we know that we kind of go with the crowd. So particularly if there's people that we would assume are leaders, like police officers yeah. or you know other people, older people who perhaps we look up to, if they don't intervene, then we won't intervene. Mm-hmm. So first of all, it takes one person in the crowd to do it, and then we know that once one person makes that step, then everyone else intervenes as yeah. well and takes part. But we have to do it safely, right, as well, because yeah. there's some situations that aren't actually safe to go in and intervene but no. there's other ways we can intervene you don't have to be up in someone's face to intervene you can call the police if you know you're feeling unsafe yep. you can talk to the person next to you and say hey I'm not comfortable with what's happening here what do you reckon we should do and actually engage people to do that but it actually just takes one person to start that and yep. you start to see that waterfall how would you effect. encourage somebody to become an active bystander because like at the end of those experiments you know you'll see they'll get people in and say, hey, did you realise that this was happening to that girl or this was happening to that guy? And they're like, I thought something was wrong, but, you know, I didn't want to intrude or I didn't want to do something else like that. My rule of thumb for people is if the hairs on the back of your neck are standing up and telling you to leave or do something, then do something if you think it's safe. But if not, don't. How would you encourage somebody to become an active bystander? Gut instinct is there for a reason. And that's that anxiety we're talking about when it's good, right? We want that to kick in. Um... And if you don't feel safe, you know, you can actually remove yourself from that situation and then still intervene. Yeah. It might be a bullying situation where you don't feel you can stand up to the bully, for example, but you could go in and check with that person afterwards who was the victim and say, look, are you okay? Was there something we could have done there to help? Is there something we can do now? Yeah. That's still an intervention after the fact. Yeah, not wrong either. And especially in the state of cell phones, at the very least, film it. So at least that way you've got something if it's a couple having an altercation for instance you've got something there um yeah many parents think that with matters like bullying sexual advances towards daughters or sons or something else um there seems to be that old mentality of oh your, your dad will sort it out um you know where they and this has happened to me on numerous occasions where uh, people will turn up to school by trying to out bully the bully mm-hmm. um uh, and it's kind of a little bit embarrassing when you see men who are in their mid-40s attempting to justify their actions as they're trying to talk about an eight-year-old that's being horrible to their eight-year-old it's kind of sad i think but anyway um do you want to explain why this doesn't work uh, rather than me saying it again for countless times oh there's so many reasons a these are kids yeah they actually part of their development they're learning how to be good friends and they're learning what it's not a good friend okay so we need to teach them that and by getting in their face and role modeling what bullying is yeah. you're not teaching them how not to do that yeah. so all the adults need to take a step back take a few breaths and like anything else we're learning our kids we need to teach them how to be kind people yeah because we're not just naturally built that way no no you're not yeah yeah what about because there are lots of parents oh you know that's just bloody new age wokeism it's just ridiculous you know this whole unicorn and rainbows thing you know might that kid just hit my kid in the face i'm gonna go and sort them out um we all know that it doesn't set a good example and that there are some parents, you know, like if you said to them, hey, look, come on, let's go and mediate with these kids and have a chat to them and explain maybe why that person's done this, um, that person's reaction, your reaction and everything else. How do you quash somebody who's like, oh, that's just rubbish, that kid just needs a good clip, which we all know is completely unacceptable mm-hmm. and unwarranted in today's era, but how do you sort of say to them, look, that's not the way forward, it's not... Yeah, I think it's <clears throat> recognising that you never know what's going on for a person, whether they be a kid or an adult, behind yeah. the scenes. 
know that kid could be dealing with a whole lot of issues at home that no one's got any knowledge of whatsoever and that's showing out in a different type of behaviour. Um, maybe there's other things happening for them clinically that you know their head's all confused and all over the place yep. and they don't have the same control as adults do and that because their brain's not fully developed till they're 25. This is why we have a whole youth justice system. Okay, mm-hmm. because the whole point of adolescence and being a kid is that we make mistakes and learn from them. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we all did it as kids. Yeah, I did. You yeah, know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I made some terrible decisions as a yeah. teenager. Um, and it's part of it. So it's the, up to the adults to role model what it looks like mm. to actually facilitate and mediate and negotiate because they're going to have to do it in the workplace. They're going to have to do it in life in general, within their families, within their relationships. Um, and role modelling is huge. Which brings us on to the next thing. Social media. Mm-hmm. Right. Now, back in our day, um, <laughs> social media wasn't social media. It was just somebody talking to you in the playground, to be fair. Uh, <laughs> but now, it's obviously, there's direct links between mental health, particularly for adolescents, teenagers, um, with uh, mental health issues. And if you've seen, uh, there's a documentary on Netflix, there's a direct correlation between people's anxiety and mental health levels going through the roof the second uh, social media starts to take off. What are some of the guidelines that you put into place for your own kids so that people have got some idea of what should we be doing about this? Because it staggers me at the number of parents that still have no idea about what TikTok is, but yet their 11 year old daughter's got it and she's doing mm-hmm. videos with it. Yeah, so what, what guidelines would you put in place? Yeah, know your stuff. So screen time, and it has it on both Apple and Android phones, allows a parent to have full control over that phone pretty much. Yeah. And that was my, I mean, my daughter got a cell phone at 12, but that was the rule, is as long as you have a cell phone, you have screen time on it. Yep. I can limit the amount of time she gets on that. Um, I can turn it off, so I don't have to take her phone off her. Yeah. It turns off automatically at 8 o'clock at night. Okay, so there's no argument in there. It just does it automatically. Any app she downloads, I have to give her approval for. And I will look at that app. I'll then Google that app and ask for parent reviews on it and see what it's about before I decide whether she can download that or not. Um, I give her quite a bit of trust in that I don't check her phone all the time. But if I notice some red flags coming up or I was worried about some of the things she was posting, then absolutely that's part of kind of our contract of her having a phone that I can... um, talk to her about that but I wouldn't be doing it in secret I'd be sitting with her and saying hey let's look through and see what's happening here Um, and the other thing with the bullying and stuff on social media again they're kids trying to work out this world so you know parents need to become involved in that and go hey how else could we have done that how do you think the other person read that you know and actually teach them some critical awareness around being able to look at a situation and understand where people are coming from and how people feel in that situation now with that with that and talking to kids and everything else do you think the role modeling of celebrity is not doing us any favors when it comes to kids so you'll very often get celebrities who Mm. get told hey you shouldn't be wearing that or you shouldn't be doing this and they'll retort on social media and make that person look like an absolute fool mm-hmm. in front of thousands or maybe millions of kids. And then the next thing you know, they're talking about, oh, we need to be kind and fair. And to, <laughs> um, and I sit there and frequently just nod my head or, or say something. My wife's like, yeah, well, and I'm like, yeah, no, uh, to me, it's not good enough that there are people who are just basically twittering out or saying something. Somebody, yeah, sure, somebody said nasty, something nasty against them, but I have a saying that I really love, and it's... Um, in all circumstances, you must take the high road. Otherwise, 
the road will take you. Mm-hmm. Um, is that something that you think that more people on TV and media should actually be listening to? Because when you listen to a lot of the radio skits or the TV skits or something, um, it's people taking the piss out of one another and then going, oh, why aren't we living in a, a kinder world? And it's like, well, you're promoting it out there for money. So, yeah. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, it's not going away, just like pornography is not going away. No. So we actually need to take it a step further and use it as a tool. So say, you know, get those examples and put it in front of kids and go... How could the adults have done this better? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yep. <laughs> you know, we used to get kids to rewrite song lyrics, for example. If you go through some of the song lyrics, yeah, no, they're, yeah. uh, they're not that grand. Yeah, um, you know, how <laughs> yeah. can you rewrite that to to be more healthy and more, you know, digestible for people? Yeah. Same thing. Use them as examples because it isn't going away, but we can teach our kids how to analyze it and do something different themselves. Yeah, and I think also sometimes if you point out to kids. That Eminem, for instance, who is exactly the same age as me, but considered really? to be way hipper. You seem so much Yeah, I know, yeah, I know. It's unbelievable. <laughs> you know, he's considered to be way more hippier and edgier. And I'm like, dude, he's like a multi-millionaire. He lives in a mansion. And even it's like, perhaps once upon a time he was, but maybe not so much anymore. <laughs> um, so with that in mind, like, if somebody does come and see you and say, hey, look, my mental health isn't too good. Um, I've heard it being referred to as my eggs are a little bit scrambled at the moment. Um, I'm not making sense, I'm turning up to work and I'm being a ghost, I'm having a hard time concentrating, I wake up at night. What sort of initial steps of advice would you give them to to get started on the way, road to wellness, I guess? Yeah, I think, you know, you really need to walk alongside that person. It's not enough just to give people a number yep. to call because actually when your brain's doing that, making that phone call and getting that support when you can't even get out of bed in the morning is a pretty tricky thing to do. Yep. You know, how do you even start that conversation when someone picks up the phone on the other end? So listen to what they're saying. They're not making it up. They're not overreacting. And actually, you should feel pretty privileged that they felt okay to come to you to talk about it. Yeah. Okay, so then it's walking alongside them to make sure we're getting the right support in place. You don't have to be the expert, but you know, find out who they need to go and see first. Go with them. Help them make the appointment. Actually walk alongside them through that whole process so that there's someone who's got their back. Yeah. When you walk into companies and you are, because I know that there'll be some companies that you've dealt with before in the past and they've sort of gone off and here comes our wellness expert and they're sort of <laughs> expecting the Dalai Lama and then walks Kylie. Um, no, I don't suspect because you are the closest thing to the Dalai Lama. Um, but what are you actually looking for in those companies when you are going around? Because I'm guessing that to start off with, one of the first things you do would be to, to walk the floors yep. and see all the inappropriate pictures <laughs> and the behaviour and sort of the tone of the office and is the boss a bully or is he modelling or he or she modelling the right behaviour, that type of stuff. So um, what? how do you sort of kickstart the wellness journey for a company when you're starting off? You don't have to give us all your secrets, I'd just be interested to hear for maybe the first day <laughs> or two. Yeah, yep, first day or two is actually just sitting back and watching people, which can you know tell you a lot. But it's also, and a part that's often missed is, you know, what's the baseline? How well are people doing? Like we've actually got a whole lot of scientific research-based tools where we can get a baseline measure of actually where people are at when Mm. they're in a workplace. And the big thing I'm looking for is whether the workplace is pushing that long-term uncontrollable stress down on its employees. Because you can bring in all the well-being tools in the world, but if you've got an executive team sitting above them who are expecting people to do 16-hour days, you know, who are 
micromanaging all their staff, who give them no control over their day whatsoever, you're not going to have a good well-being in the organisation. No, and so yeah. that's that's the big thing that gets missed often. Yeah, I just finished reading a book on mindfulness, and everybody thinks Google are amazing because they introduced a mindfulness program, but truth be known, it was actually a little bit of a sort of scheme to get the workers to increase their productivity a little bit <laughs> while driving down yes. their stress levels. Yeah. Which again is a, another problem you have with some corporate firms, isn't it? It's like, so we'll get the wellness expert and she's going to bring everybody's levels down back and we're all going to be nice and everything else. And then we could probably squeeze some more productivity out of this. Yeah. Um, so is it really hard to find a fine line between wellness and productivity when you're going in and talking to a corporate firm or are you firmly in the hey, let's look after our people and then they'll do an amazing job type thing. Yeah, it really depends on the executive and, yeah. you know, the bosses because it's got to be coming from top down and you can tell straight away whether they want you to come in and tick a few boxes yeah. or whether they're really interested in staff well-being because yeah. it's not attached to productivity at that point. They just want the best for their staff. Yeah. Um, and there's a big difference between the two. And, you know, if the first step they have to do is actually understand mental illness and they need to be supporting staff who experience mental illness the same way they do if they got cancer, for example. You know, they wouldn't have a problem um, putting a full support plan in place for that person, giving them sick leave so that they can go through their treatment and taking them, you know, three months or whatever it might take for them to go through that treatment. You know, we need to be putting equal processes in place for mental health as what we do for physical health in the first instance. Yeah. Um, now, with that in mind, you very often will get a situation where somebody has got a mental health issue and they will um, go from work for a couple of weeks and try and get themselves sorted. They'll come back, things aren't quite right, so maybe they go away again for another couple of weeks or something else. Meanwhile... There'll be some people on the floor, hmm, that's all right for Jonesy, you know, he's getting like weeks off at a time. What about the rest of us? I'm having to do all of his work and everything else. How do you explain that? If you're if you're somebody's supervisor or something, do you actually say to them, hey, look, uh, this person is suffering from something that we all kind of know about, um, and here's the steps for rehab. Go and have a look at a website somewhere or something so you've got a better idea. Because there are some people, I think if it is a physical injury, they get it. But if it's a mental injury, it's like, oh, you know, it's taking the yep. Michael. Yep. Yeah. So. It's just education and training. Like, even when I worked at Bank of New Zealand, that was one of the first things we did. And we trained, you know, I think it was over 2,000 people leaders around mental illness and what that looked like and what that meant for their staff. And it just um, changed the whole way the company then looked at it and supported their staff. Yeah. Because they had a really good understanding of what was happening for that person and also how we treat that and how we support people to get back to their full potential again. Yeah. Um, and, you know, when we put that in place, people got back to their full potential a lot quicker. Yeah. <laughs> because they felt supported yeah. um, in their recovery. As opposed to being picked on or, oh gosh, I don't want to go to work or something else. Yeah. Right, for those of us who haven't, and I have, so don't worry about me, uh, who haven't seen or experienced mental health issues, what some of the things or the red flags that you should look for yeah it's those extremes and behavior so you know the things you start doing when life's going a bit crappy like for me i'm a crier um do you cry when you get get not since the rugby world cup probably against england that was probably the last time but those weren't real tears (laughs) but anyway yeah 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 but yeah yeah yeah, i normally have to say i normally am one of those people who will take a couple of deep breaths uh what they call bamboo breaths because i do meditation you Mm -hmm. see so i take a couple of bamboo breaths and then i will go right i need to go out into the garden for a bit of a walk for maybe 10 or 15 minutes Mm -hmm. and then just sort of sort everything else out or uh to be fair 
since I started up jiu-jitsu and I've had the bejesus squeezed out of me that kind of helps my stress levels as well because yeah, I yeah. Yeah, come in a, as a beaten old man every day so it's fine yep. yeah 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 so but it's anyway. yeah it's looking at the things people do when they're not so good so you know not eating perhaps waking up in the middle of the night or not being able to get to sleep yeah uh, procrastinating and watching Netflix all day long till it comes up and goes are you still watching yeah don't judge me Netflix like, <laughs> totally yeah, okay yeah. with that um, yeah. and it can be different for different people so some people might isolate some people might want to be around people all the time some people stop eating some people eat everything in sight some people stop exercising some people go extreme on the exercise so it's those extreme behaviors and it's over the length of time that they're happening for okay so you know kind of four to five weeks i'm not too worried if it's going on longer than six weeks and that's a red flag that perhaps it's more long-term uncontrollable stress that we're dealing with or perhaps there's something clinical going on that we need to address in there yeah the other thing is if you're already kind of up there and on the roller coaster um, and something happens like a relationship breakup or you lose your job or some kind of crisis situation that's going to push people quickly yeah. then we really need to get support in quickly for those people as well. So extremes of kind of behaviours, of that kind of crappy end of the scale, yeah. or if something happens, it's going to push people quickly. Yeah, and like, I know that there are lots of people on social media, they, and they have good intentions, but they will put up pictures or films of uh, people like Chris Cornell from Soundgarden or Chester Bennington from Lincoln Park, and say, this is the picture of somebody who was depressed and there's a oh, I'm a huge Lincoln Park fan but there's a great piece of footage of Chester playing with his family and then three hours later he's actually dead he's committed suicide um, to be fair um, Chester had an awful lot of issues including depression and alcoholism and drug use and all three of those there you get very good at disguising stuff as you do if you've got mental health problems but like you say if you're in the early stages those flags will be more obvious to see. Is that'd be fair, eh? Yeah, not for everyone, yeah. um, because we, as humans, we're good at hiding that yeah. stuff from people, right? Um, often it's those closest to us who might notice them more. Yeah. Um, I've been in workplaces where we haven't seen a single red flag. Yeah. You know. So yeah, we don't always, which is also really important that we're checking in with people and asking the question. And again, that gut feeling. If you think someone's not doing so well, ask them the question. Yeah. You know. I've noticed that (laughs) I'm worried about you is there something we can do to help Um, and following through on that as well yeah and that's something that guys do not do very well Um, there seems to be this I don't know this picture of I'm going to hold hands and sing Kumbaya with you if I'm asking if you're okay and I can't understand that but it's something that hopefully in a couple of generations will break down but that's Mm. for another day Uh, okay so the eulogy question the eulogy question you're like that (laughs) So this is something I do with every single guest. So it works this way. Uh, The day of reckoning has come for Kylie, Mm -hmm. and you are laying there, uh, and you can hear, strangely enough, you're actually still sort of semi-conscious, and you can hear (laughs) what they are saying about Mm. you at your eulogy. What Mm -hmm. would you like them to say about you at your eulogy? (laughs) (laughs) Um, They'll probably say something about me being highly inappropriate, which I'm totally okay with, because that's what gets me through the day. Yeah. Um, I'd like them to say that they remember my laugh yep. and that I brought sunshine to someone's day when they weren't doing so well. Can't argue with that. That's awesome. Right. So if we want to follow you on social media, because you've got lots of cool tips and tricks and awkward conversations to have with people <laughs> and all that type of stuff. And uh, I'll let you know now, if you, when you follow Kylie on social media, it's a real eye-opener. You're not going to get the... <laughs> The white coat, uh, you're going to get Kylie 
uh, maybe exercising in front of a laptop, for instance, and going, my God, I'm having a crap day. And I've just had a run, so my face is all red as well. Um, so where's the best place to follow you on social media? Uh, on Facebook or Instagram yep. at the Tough Stuff NZ. Cool. So no doubt you've got workshops and everything else planned for next year. So again, if you go to the Tough Stuff website on Facebook and Instagram, uh, you get some postings from there about those workshops that are coming up. And we've got a whole section about to open on the website, particularly for parents, where there's going to be a whole lot of videos on how you have these conversations with your kids that you can get into. Absolutely perfect, because let's be honest, there are parents who are terrified by it. Um, Even some of the school teachers I deal with when we're doing Keeping Ourselves Safe are like, this is going to be awkward. I'm like, no, it's not. You've got one, I've got one. That's the way it works. It's going to be hilarious, people. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Let's just embrace the horror and go together. So that's all good. Uh, Kylie, thank you very much, because... That didn't go too bad, did it? Because the, given the fact that you hadn't planned, and we've been well over 45 minutes well now. done, us. Done, perfect, all right. <laughs> uh, we'll see you next week on the Cappuccino. Uh, my guest will be, I'm not going to tell you who it is, but it will be a person who was at the Lint Siege in Sydney and actually was there when uh, rescuers went into uh, the cafe, the Lint Cafe in um, Australia there, and we'll talk to her about what she did uh, and how they were actually trying to get all the information from within. Uh, So stay posted to the Instagram account because there will be some more tactical solution prizes to give away. After this podcast comes out, about three or four days afterwards, I'll ask you a question about Kylie or this podcast. Make sure that you DM me with the answers and then you can have the opportunity to win prizes. All right, we'll see you then. Cheers. Cappuccino with Constable Brian. Real people, real stories. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss his next podcast.